your reputation is everything, you know, in this kind of field. And so like, you don't want to, you don't want to be the person that like jumps off the ship as it's sinking. You want to like ride it as hard as possible until, you know, you can actually um, get it into a good place. Welcome to Manufacturing Happy Hour, the podcast where we get real about the latest trends and technologies impacting modern manufacturers. Manufacturing Happy Hour. Each week, we interview industry experts that are at the top of their craft and give you the tools, tactics and strategies you need to take your career and your business to the next level. And now your host, Chris Lukey. Hey, how we doing? Welcome to episode 114. I should say welcome back to, I assume, almost all of you. We are on our third and final part of a gargantuan three-part interview with Nick Pinkston. And today we're going to talk about what it's like to leave a startup. Specifically, we're going to learn from Nick's experience when he left his startup plethora. Now, in each of these episodes that I've been doing with Nick, I've introed him in a different way. So I'm just going to say this time that Nick was doing manufacturing before manufacturing was cool again. That's right. He's basically a regular old industrial hipster. Now, he's led a number of manufacturing focused startups, but he's currently the founder and CEO of Volition a marketplace dedicated specifically to industrial components. I don't know why I'm telling you this, because like I said, you should already know this if you've been listening to the past two episodes, but maybe you just jumped ahead. And honestly, I guess that's okay. I think these episodes do stand on their own pretty well. So first, if you haven't listened to parts one and two yet, I'd go back to episodes 112 and 113 and get a bit of background. Today, like I said before, we're focused on a startup that Nick had been running prior to Volition called Plethora and the lessons he learned from that experience. So here are three specific things that you can expect from this episode. First, we're going to hear about Plethora and Nick's original mission for that company. Second, we'll hear about challenges, pivots, scaling, departures, and all of the things Nick learned from these experiences along the way. Finally, we'll talk on a broader scale about hardware and manufacturing startups as well as venture capital. Once again, as we did in the past couple episodes, we'll be taking audience questions, so be listening for your name to see if your question got answered. And if you want to learn more, head to the show notes page at manufacturinghappyhour.com slash 114 for more information. Before we jump in, I do want to give one more plug for the Manufacturing Happy Hour industry community. If you want to take part in discussions like this, if you want to take part when we do these audience-type questions before the interview, well, hey, we do that over in the Manufacturing Happy Hour industry community. You can get there by going to manufacturinghappyhour.com slash community. It'll take you straight to our LinkedIn page where that group lives, and we share best practices, help one another in our careers, find opportunities, answer questions you may have. It's a great spot to be. Again, manufacturinghappyhour.com slash community to join today. And with that, it's time to meet up one more time with Nick Pinkston. All right, we're here for chapter three. And <laughs> I, I want to start this one with uh, with another, like the same question we started each segment with. So you mentioned you're nomadic now. You're not necessarily spending all your time in San Francisco. You're just in LA. You travel around. So pick your next spot. Where would we be hanging out? A favorite bar <laughs> anywhere else in the country or the world? Oh man, that's a hard question. Cause like, I'm not even sure where I'm going to be next. Um, one that's maybe appropriate is that happy hour we were at, at IMTS. Um, yeah. at, I forget what German beer place that was. Um, but yeah, that was, that was a good set. Let's say it's, let's say we're there. Chicago was great when we were there. Um, such a, such a great city, very good weather at the time. 
Um, yeah, let's say that we're not there in January. That's that's my only ask. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds good. Yeah, there were a lot of good uh, good happy hours there. Well, I think you mentioned like some of the venture capital groups were throwing them. Mars Brewing was a good one. Um, I threw a party at Reggie's, which was uh, which is where you go to shoot Malort. Great, well, not a great Chicago <laughs> drink, but um, Malort gets far too much credit on this show, so we're just going to pretend I didn't okay. say that and jump <laughs> jump into the conversation. So, you know this this part of the episode is a little different from what we've done so far. We've talked about your visions for the future of manufacturing. We'll take more audience questions here as well, but this is really the story behind Plethora and what people can learn from your experience about working at a startup and exiting out of a startup. Um, And honestly, I don't really know the full story of how you left Plethora. So I think a lot of folks are going to be excited to hear this. So let's start with baseline. What is Plethora? Let's say we're at the German beer hall. Describe what you originally set out to do as if you were having a drink with with a crew of people. Yeah, totally. I mean, the idea with Plethora was to make, you know, a self-programming factory where an engineer could give us a design and specs inside of CAD. We would evaluate the manufacturability of the item, give you feedback in real time inside of CAD. You know, this hole's too deep, you know, this kind of stuff and costing instantaneously. Hit by it now, it would go into our factory and it would automatically tool itself up to make, you know, quantity one or more very fast. And, you know, we were... If you wanted to pay for it, we could go from a design and a part. I think the lowest we did it was in two hours when Google paid us like infinite money um, to do that. And and I remember hearing about Plethora years ago. I mean, you've been on my radar for probably four years or so. In fact, I, <laughs> I know we talked about doing this interview like a year ago while Volition, your new company, was currently in – um, stealth mode. Stealth. So, yeah, you know, yeah. I, I, my fault for not replying to that email, we, we could have done this then, but I know you can talk more about it now. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's actually easier now with Plethora not being around. Uh, I was, I was going to say, so that, that brings up an interesting topic. Why did you leave Plethora? I don't know the story. I don't know if it was your choice, etc. So I'm oh, interested yeah. to hear what, what ultimately led to the exit. And then I have a few and exits the wrong word. Cause people think of acquisition at that point. Right. But yeah, yeah, yeah. Why, why did you leave Plethora? I have some other questions questions on top of that. Well, so um, let me back up a little bit and just say like what the what the broad story of how I got to that position, right? Please so do. Like, you know, so I would say like, here was the rough business journey of Plethora. So, you know, me and Jeremy, both from Pittsburgh, moved to San Francisco to make our automated factory. Um, after, I mean, I think I failed two times to raise money for this. So I like would go out, I didn't know what I was doing, I would fail, you know, it was like moving to the major leagues in uh, in San Francisco from from Pittsburgh. So I had to get rid of there. Got lucky enough to meet Scott Nolan at um, Founders Fund through the Dabrowskis. Um, I think Michael Dabrowski at Synthigo, who had like the biotech version of Plethora. So, you know, Scott was an engineer at SpaceX, so he totally got it. And that was great. So it was great working with Scott. Um, just hung out with Scott in LA like a couple months ago. So, um, so they came in and Founders Fund, you know, kind of a visionary firm, really believes in the future. You know, they're a little controversial now, but I think, you know, I've, I've only had good interactions with them. So, you know, we built the company and I'll, I'll go over the other history whenever you want to, but we got to the point where the core technology required a lot more investment. We were like, okay, to really do it, here's actually what it is. After a few years of doing this, it's really challenging. And then there's also, you know, I think at that point we had taken, I don't know, 35 or $40 million. I mean, very significant stuff. And we were producing maybe 
annualized revenue of like maybe $5 million or something. So definitely way lower than you would want for that much investment, right? And so, you know, the main thing was an operational problem, like, or sort of technical that leads to operations. So it's like, it was very easy to sell our product. People, you know, really liked the interface. They really liked, um, you know, fast turnarounds and the parts were high quality. So we were good there. The issue was really one that if, you know, it's like self-driving cars, either it's 100% self-driving, there's no driver, or even if it's 90% self-driving, there's still a person in there making sure that the 10% doesn't kill someone. And so that means we had to have a lot of people, which meant we blew a lot of money on people, right? And so there was this decision of like, um, you know, could we get any money to actually invest in that technology? I pitched, I think it was 200, maybe maybe even more than that companies in our final round before we did a major transition. So, I mean, I was just brutal. I was getting sick all the time because I was like so stressed out about it. There were times when, um, you know, like just all this shit happened. So I would say before we got to that point, let me back up a little bit. So Founders Fund did this and it got where it was like, this is like we had this ramp where we ramped to maybe like a quarter million a month or something. And it was like, awesome. We had another investor come in, uh, Ray Lane from Great Point Ventures. And they, you know, Ray was actually a mechanical engineer for Pittsburgh too, interestingly. So he had like a personal kind of interest in this. And, um, and you know, unfortunately, I remember this board meeting where it was like, uh, he was like, what I thought when we invested, smiley face. He's like, and then basically we hit 250 and all of the metrics went sideways. And, um, and he was like, how am I now? frowny face. And the reason for this was, is we hit our operational limits very quickly. And so then there was this whole, like what we called hysteresis problem where we would, you know, if you're selling only a couple units of each thing, the yield of those units is really, um, is really sensitive in your capacity. So if the yield halves, you need twice the amount of capacity to do it, right? And obviously that is not really possible to hire for, let alone have the machines and stuff. So we got into this issue. So operations was hard because the tech wasn't fully solved. GPV had invested on the theory that our revenue was gonna go up and this was a scalable business because that's what we thought at the time because we were scaling it. And so that scaling, we never solved. And I can get into all the reasons of why. And so at that point, I was like, I try to do the few hundred investor thing Everyone could see that these metrics were sideways for like a year or whatever. So we had no metrics. Founders Fund was like, yeah, man, like seems like the thing is hard, you know? And so they were like, we can't do this anymore. I think that's a totally reasonable decision. I think they made the right decision. Um, but GPV is like, yo, we're, we're, we're down to keep going, you know? And so that's when the few hundred thing happened. At the end, I was at a board meeting and I was like, okay, guys, we did our best thing. All the feedback is the same, is that we don't like your metrics, you're burning too much money, this business is too complicated to work, right? Like that was the end thing. And they were all correct. And I was like, okay, we need to make hard decisions, you know? And so basically there was a plan of like, could we turn this thing into more of a traditional manufacturing company to keep it going? And to me, that wasn't a company that was gonna actually achieve my mission, right? It was like, yeah, I could have been CEO of a normal machine shop or whatever, and we could do larger contracts or whatever, fine. But that was just super uninteresting, you know? So the fact that we weren't able to do that, I basically just negotiated enough money to get a lot of more of my engineers to stay. So we had a lot of gamesmanship with them. And then, um, and then I resigned, basically. So no, they, they didn't force me out. They wanted me to stay. Um, not super, super. They weren't like begging me to stay. But, um, but also it was like, you know, they were, I mean, I, I think I still had a lot of control at that point as well. Yeah. But like, there was, a, there was a really tough round where everyone got super diluted and GPV got a much larger piece. And, you know, which is, hey, they were taking the risk. I think that's totally reasonable when everyone else stops. So that's what happened. But it definitely was like, oh, this is their company now. And their plan is uninteresting to me. You know, mm. and so then my COO, who is um, an ops guy from manufacturing, was like, "Oh, I'd love to be a CEO." 
And then so he came in. And so I was actually like, that actually worked out well. I'm not leaving them in the lurch because like I, yeah, I, your reputation is everything, you know, in this kind of field. Mm-hmm. And so like, you don't want to, you don't want to be the person that like jumps off the ship as it's sinking. You want to like ride it as hard as possible until, you know, you can actually um, get it into a good place. Right. And so I left Plethora, I think it kept going for three years after I left. Um, and so, you know, and they reconfigured the model to look a lot closer to like what a, you know, say Hadrian or something looks like, which was aerospace contracts, longer runs, this kind of thing. But I would say that the management wasn't um, great at doing that. And they, they needed to reconfigure more, I think. Um, I can tell you more, but that's, so yeah, I left voluntarily, um, you know, and I, and I think that like, I disagreed with the plan as something interesting fundamentally and i thought that like it's gonna be hard to do that i'm not gonna waste my life trying to do that you know yeah (laughs) it's it's uh it's interesting right because i kind of set that up not knowing exactly what the story would be but i think as a complete outsider when i saw that you weren't part of plethora anymore my assumption you know at the time was that i bet he's just going to do something else that he's excited about the company's probably at a spot where you know he's done what he wants to do it with, and he's just on to the next adventure. So you kind of confirm that. I apologize to the audience if I set that up like it was going to be some high drama, <laughs> like, you know, Silicon Valley yeah, style yeah. fight. But I actually think there's a lot to learn from everything you just said there. A lot of the questions we have are going to go into that yeah, awesome. a bit more. So, well, maybe now that now that Plethora is gone, you know, you mentioned the model pivoted to more of a traditional machine shop. Can you share why, I mean, ultimately you feel it fizzled out? Because as you mentioned, I think in one of the earlier interviews that Plethora shut the doors this year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was like very interesting to see. I want to say in like Q1 or Q2, um, watching an auction of all of our equipment, you know, so that's like, you know, fully birth and life of a uh, of a startup. But uh, yeah, so why, your, your question was, why did it fail? I wouldn't say I, I said fizzled out. I was using a nicer word. But uh, yeah, why, why did Plethora ultimately fail? Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, I mean, we can we can say it. I'm not sensitive about it. Um, so like, I mean, ultimately, it's like, okay, here was the story and where I think there's inflection points to learn from, you know? Yeah. So we were very lucky that like Jeremy and I, you know, we got I think it was 1.6 million from Founders Fund. And we, you know, bought a Haas machine, got a little garage in the mission and started like trying to figure this thing out. We had automated, like, like basically what we called flip-ems, like just two-sided parts, no side operations or anything. We had operated that for, for parts that were about a foot in um, like square, basically. And we were like, cool, like, okay, we, we got that, you know, that's sort of like what a routing software would do, except we could do like hole tapping and, and you know, stuff like this. And maybe like a few months after that, maybe like six months after that, we had done both sides with the automated fixture generation for like those kind of fixtures, not for all part types, but you know. So we looked at that and we're like, okay, like we got a thing that works. We have a factory where we can, you know, make parts or whatever, let's start selling. And so then we went out there and everyone's like, hey, like that's a super limited offering. Um, You know, like if we had 20 parts, maybe one of them would fit that bill, but like the others wouldn't. So can you be like a normal machine shop? And so we're like, okay, the plan was, is we'll have this automated line and we'll do the one of 20 parts fully automatically. And so we'll get some margin that way and we'll keep developing that. And then there'll be another line that'll be full manual. And then that line will just be normal machinists. So then we'll get some revenue that way because, you know, we're trying to run a business here. We're trying to get VCs to show that we can actually sell shit and run operations. So we'll learn operations and sales on a traditional model. And then we'll sort of start baking in this together, right? And so the idea was first fully split, like either it's full auto or full manual. And then later we're like, okay, let's try to see what automated stuff we can add in. So I would say at this point when we expanded our offering was really when we started getting into this high variance of managing operations of 
very few number of parts. So we still wanted to do the prototype thing because the margins are way better. If you have automated cam software, that's a setup cost reduction thing. It's not actually a machine time reduction thing, right? So the parts are being cut maybe even in more time because you're trying to increase yields. You're cutting more slowly and being more careful with how you do it. So maybe your machine time, which is cheaper than human time, um, is actually um, you know more expensive, but you cut out the setup. So if you make long runs, you obviate any of the setup costs because you're amortizing that over 100 parts. Now, that's what most shops do, right? They don't like onesie-twosie. They like hundreds or thousands of the same thing. And so this is why you've seen companies like Hadrian, Formlogic, and so on going that route. Um, the issue, though, is that, like, can you actually get many margins once a bunch of companies are doing the same thing? That, that remains to be said. So the reason we didn't go that route is we're like, is there really a long-term business there or is that like a private equity business, not a venture business, you know? Um, so I think that remains to be seen with those models today. But, um, but so that's why we went this route of like, let's see if we can still go into this like high variance of like lots of part types, but short runs because that's where the margins are. And I think that we basically overestimated how um, good our technology could be on what timeline you know? Mm. And I think that like, it was very hard because I think like no shop likes these parts. So all the quoters and machinists we could hire were the people who didn't like those parts, right? Like no one likes them because it's notorious to like have to make these parts. And they're often loss leaders for a larger job later when you make a hundred of the same part, right? So you're paying all the setup costs. So I think that was one of the fundamental things is like, if you couldn't do the tech Either you should stop the operations and get your tech actually working and like not because we, you know, we're losing money on the parts, even the operations because of the slower stuff. And we eventually did get it profitable on a gross margin basis. But, um, you know, it was just like a lot of stuff to be doing um, and not developing technology. Right. And that wasn't counting sales and marketing everything either. Right. So that's if you took the whole business unit, it's probably losing money on a sales and marketing, you know, on an operating margin basis, it's still losing money if you just took the tech. So it's like you had to make a decision, like, could you get anyone to fund that tech for like two years, like patient capital? That's where it's like, maybe we should have developed it inside of a university or something first. Like, that's where I think about that. Or should you like just do the manual thing first? And this is kind of what the model I think Hadrian's doing is they're like, what if we did the manual thing first, took the normal off the shelf stuff, make a little bit of our own kind of uh, manufacturing execution, MES sort of software um, to make it together and maybe sort of automated some of the um, little intermediate steps. And mm -hmm. I think that's cool. Um, what I do wonder about is like, if that's basically just a normal factory, you know, which is great. We need that. I'm just not sure it's a venture funded company on a, on a um, returns growth basis, you know. So a question that I have and, and a bunch of other people did, Matt, Justin, everyone was asking this in some way, shape or form. What were the toughest lessons you learned from Plethora? And really, the bigger question is, if you were to start it today, what would you do differently? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that like, you know, um, I'm an advisor at FormLogic, which I think is is basically like, the way I would run the company if I did it again, like me and Paul, Paul, actually, the CEO visited Plether back in the day, and I could tell he was sniffing around um, at what we were doing to like, try to like do his own version of it. And at that time, it was when we were not really doing well. And so I was like, just kind of BSing with him about how it actually worked, you know, and the actual problems. So me and Paul kept in touch. And so when I left, um, you know, he had reached out and be like, hey, let's grab coffee. So then I told him all the different stuff. So you know, this is where like, run an operational business, don't do it in San Francisco, because it's too expensive and hard to find people, you know, so hence, he's in Pittsburgh. And then, you know, there's, I won't tell all the different stuff is there. It's secret shit, right? So like, there, there's a bunch of things that are like, how do you reduce costs on the people side? How do you do automation in the right places? How do you tighten up how you run a factory in a digital way? So, um, 
you can eliminate the yield problems and can understand your real capacity, right? I mean, fundamentally, I would say that like Form and, and a few of these other companies are um, expanding the number of parts per design, right? So there's more units of the same thing. Um, they're not focusing on CAM software and they're trying to do more operational stuff to do this and then eventually getting back to the CAM stuff, event, you know, if, if that is actually what they want to do. So like, I think that's actually what is going on. So I think approaching CAM from the front like we were and trying to do the big automated Harry thing, we thought that was going to take only a few years and it, it and, and require like, you know, $5 million, $10 million. And it's probably that it requires like, you know, 50 or $500 million or, you know, some huge amount of money, you know, self-driving cars. Most people can drive. Most people cannot mill, you know? Mm-hmm. So like maybe, maybe it's like actually a pretty hard problem. Um, so I think that was one big mistake is like, we should have, we should have figured out like what we wanted to be at that. And I think that honestly, I wouldn't have wanted to run the operational company like a Hadrian type company. Like I wouldn't like I wouldn't do that. I think form is more interesting because they're more automated in certain ways. Um, but I think that like there's a reason why I'm doing software only right now um, versus hardware. That's pretty much everyone who does hardware manufacturing ends up doing a software company next because they're so they're, they're they're so burnt out from all the uh, the physical shit. <laughs> it, it's it's interesting because the way you answered that actually dives right into one of the next questions. JL Mitro wants to ask this one. You talked about some of the things you underestimated: time, the tech etc. The part of this question is, how did those experiences inform your decisions at Volition then? Yeah, I mean, I looked at like, you know, seems like I was good at acquiring, um, you know, like customers and revenue and like doing like table stakes tech actually does attract customers in this industry. Like people are hungry for new approaches to this. And like the people who buy parts from Plethora are the same people who buy them from Volition, right? It's like, there are people in their 20s and 30s who are designing things or trying to get their job done. They have a lot of stress and they're, you know, they're just trying to like do a lot of stuff and there's a lot in their mind. So how do we make tools for them? So I, I care about the same audience. I care about the same approach to getting in their workflows as Plethora. But I was like, screw having some factory that's so hard to scale and having a giant technical thing that you have to do. Now, I would say this. We made a little bit of that mistake in Volition where Volition has taken longer than we thought to, to do this core data thing. But luckily, it wasn't as hard as Plethora because we actually are on the other side of the hard parts of it. So, um, so that's great. Um, but yeah, we also like, I feel like I keep having these companies where I'm like, do this giant technical thing and then magic happens. Um, luckily, the, um, you know, instead of boiling an ocean like Plethora, I think maybe Volition was just boiling a lake or something like this. Um, and I think it's like, you know, boiling lakes do exist. And so... You know, we we do we do have that, but yeah, I think that like that was one of the big reasons was like remove a lot of the tech out of this thing and make it super scalable. You know, I think I was really looking for scalability and not having a physical thing that would destroy us. You know, I mean, even logistics is you know the SaaS guys think that this is a physical business because there's like warehouses somewhere. You know, mm-hmm. um, so we're not we're not a, a full SaaS company, but it's one click over where there's no factory we have to run. So um, let's put this in the context of of the listeners a little bit then, because you talked about how you never solved the scaling issue at Plethora, and you mentioned that's part, you know, partially because of the tech. What advice do you have to other startups out there to avoid this same thing? I mean, a question that I should say, a theme that comes up on this show, this is nothing new, but hey, a smart person learns from their mistake, a wise person learns from other people's mistakes. So what advice yeah. <laughs> would you put out what advice would you put out there so that way other people don't find themselves in this issue when it comes to scaling in companies like these? I mean, I think that like you have to confirm that your model actually works. And I think you like we bet too early that we would 
excuse me, be able to actually scale this thing in this way. And I think we prematurely scaled. And that's like the classic thing is premature scaling. We were also pushed to do that. So, you know, it's a bit of a bit of like pick your investors well and, and everything like this um, and, and make sure your expectations are set. Um, and I think the other thing is like if we would have got our product line way more focused, like we just did aluminum for this thing, which is, you know, now what the new companies are also doing um, is focusing on a much narrower offering. And I think, you know, you see, say, like a carbon um, uh, like a carbon 3D printing, right? They were doing the shoe thing. So they had like some deal with like Adidas or whatever, and they were doing a very specific thing and they could optimize the hell out of it and have this thing like this, right? And I think that's true of a lot of these companies. They find some like golden use case and then they build it around that. I think in hindsight, I think we would definitely do the same thing. So if someone's making a manufacturing company, it's like, okay, really find those customers who are like, yes, 100%, I want that thing. Um, and because we did have a thing that was selling. That was the thing that was a little confusing, right? It's like, well, we had orders out the ass. We had to turn away orders. So it's like, does that mean product market fit? Because everyone's ordering and actually likes using your software. It's like, well, yes, in a sense, but like actually like the, um, the real thing is that your operations don't scale, you know? Mm -hmm. So like that was the real issue. Like I think that right now, you, you could you could make this work for a certain class of parts. Like say there is someone who has a product line of high, highly variant aluminum things that they want all the time. You could have made something that did that with certain parameters and actually made it work, you know? So Daniel Garcia has a question that kind of piggybacks off this or one of the comments you made in that last comment yeah. about investors. And he says, I have an asterisk <laughs> to this, but he says, how hard is it to follow your vision when working with a board of investors who just care about profits? Uh, <laughs> my, my, my asterisk is, do, uh, do they care about more than just profits? But beyond that, he says, hey, is it a lot of pressure? Is it, is it difficult? And then he says, because you always seem so chill and like nothing phases <laughs> you. So anyway, shout out to Daniel for that very thoughtful question. We should say that like, so, so Dan Garcia is actually a former machinist at Plethora. Oh, okay. Um, so, okay. Um, so, you know, he has, he has seen this from the inside and me and him, he was on uh, usually the first shift. And so I would get in early and it's go around and see how everyone's doing. So me and Dan are always chatting about the world, but um, so yeah, good, good guy, Dan Garcia. But um, yeah, I mean, I think that there is the pressure. I mean, do investors just care about profits? I mean, it's funny. I think that they also care about the time value of money. So it's profits when um, just, just to be a little, little, uh, you know, a technical there, but I think they also, um, I think, a lot of people that are in this because they really believe in technology, but at the end of the day, you know, they, they get carry or a bonus or whatever their setup is if they actually do it. So I do think that it is, it is pretty much down to, is this going to work? You know? Um, and, and that, that's fair. I mean, I signed up knowing that that is what it was. I wanted it to work. I wanted it to generate a lot of profit as well, you know? So it's, it's lucky that we weren't in some situation where we had to do bad things for profit. Like, I think that like you can do a company like Plethora with VCs and it could work. Like, I don't think there's some, you know, malignment of interests of the public versus this. Like, you know, there are companies that are like that, you know, that are just kind of broken on purpose, you know, it, it's not like that. So that, that is good. Um, I found that actually early on that the board, like, it was almost like I wanted to do more things that would actually do the maturation of the operations part of the company. Like, I wanted to hire a COO after the Series A because we kept getting these production managers that couldn't handle the really complicated problem, you know? And so certain things I fought against were just like, I need to spend a quarter million a year on some guy, you know, basically to do this. And I just have to spend a lot of money because 
that this problem requires a very senior person, you know, and it was very challenging. And we could have at that point found a better person early on who I think would have accelerated the operations of this thing, you know? So that was actually more of a business reason. I think that like, we didn't run into the people until later on who didn't want to do the technology. But I also think that they weren't wrong either. Like when Great Point was like, hey, we're going to make this into a PE company. I think that was a rational like thing. It was like, if you were going to try to make this technology, you would start a new company. Like why have all the history of plethora with all of its issues in the market when you can start a new company, right? So like that actually makes sense. And so Founders was like, hey, the foundation of this business is now, you know, Founders are burned out. It's gone for like six years or whatever, or I guess maybe five or something, um, or four maybe at that point, and they were out. So I, I think that everyone actually made the right decisions, you know, funny enough. Um, even if you're looking at like how to develop the technology, if you have to do it in the normal capitalist way, then I think they made all the right decisions, you know. Um, I don't think there was any like brash, irrational stuff. It's just like, hey, this is what this is. I agreed to do a capitalistic company with a certain return rate, and here we are trying to get that return rate in some way right and so they had to do a reverse split thing to dilute us and get more of the company which would then juice their returns by just having a bigger piece for cheap right and like no one else wanted to put money in so i guess they didn't want that because they weren't willing to bet on it so you know i think that's just what this game is and so i actually don't think it was that bad like i think the board in many ways could have been more involved i think later ray was the coo of oracle and so he was a big ops guy and he actually was like we need a coo and i was like finally someone who wants to get a coo in here um, and so I was happy. He knew the, you know, the importance of that. And we did, but it was too late at that point, I think. Um, you know, I think that like we had a bad foundation already by the time Ray was there. And, you know, it, it, it is what it is. This question comes from Doug. It's along these same lines. I'm going to read it verbatim. I, I might have asked it differently, but can you speak to the relationship between VCs and investors' expectations with regards to traditional manufacturing? expectations you mean that like vcs want higher returns than regular manufacturing i i guess the way i was thinking about this question is hey uh, you know maybe taking a step back are vcs and investors starting to have more reasonable expectations with manufacturing startups traditional manufacturing etc that's maybe how i'm thinking of it i hope i'm not taking it too far off of what doug yeah, wanted okay. to ask so like i think it's like i would not say that they're lowering their expectations like the risk return curve that all of us in a capitalist world are bound by says that if you're taking more risk, you take more return. And so with VC, it's very high risk and you need more return. So I don't think that's going anywhere. Like that's just, are you going to get capital or not? I, I think that there may be actually some irrational exuberance going on in VC. I think a lot of people just raise these hard tech funds. I'm not sure in a, in a post-SPAC, post-Fed money printer environment that you're actually going to get the returns on those, frankly. And th this is why like, I'm somewhat skeptical of hard tech um, before it's actually got the R&D turned into a product in VC. That's probably like bad for me to say that. I'm sure there's a lot of examples of it working, but I think you have to be very careful. You know, So I think there were more VCs that were doing, like, say, biotech for, for devices and drugs. It's a classic, like, its own thing. And that actually did this hard tech stuff well for a long time. I think we are getting VCs who are a little bit better at this now. Um, I would say most aren't. And I think there's a lot of like, um, like the VCs are still a little bit like irrationally exuberant, but, um, but I do think we're able to sort like 
really hard tech problems um, that did or didn't work from just stuff in manufacturing. And I think stuff in manufacturing, like, you know, five or 10 years ago, even that no one wanted. It was just SaaS software. You know, they were just like, VCs were afraid of this market. I think now the VCs are less afraid of that stuff. It's like, yeah, manufacturing execution system. Yeah, go ahead and make it. You know, you got, you got like a first resonance or something making this, this kind of holistic plant software. I don't think that was possible five to 10 years ago. Like, I think everyone would have been like, screw manufacturing. It's too hard to do it, you know? So I think we're seeing a lot of those companies, you know, and say like Azometry is like maybe one click into operational stuff where you have to be in all the machine shops. Like, you know, they started about 10 years ago. And I know that Randy, a guy who had multiple, um, you know, wins, you know, big wins, it was still really hard for him to raise VC. And it's like Randy, you know, has made people hundreds of millions of dollars. He still can't get this stuff. So I think VCs are often have these like biases. And I think the biases in, in, are in a good way wearing down. But I think the return expectations are still definitely the same. So we've got just a handful more questions here. I'm going to combine a couple of them because they're on the same same yeah, yeah. lines. Um, Sianna Chakabardi wants to ask, what was slash is the biggest challenge in like your startups or manufacturing startups in general? Then another one that I think is is on along the same lines is what are some of the pitfalls you see manufacturing startups falling into? And that comes from Phil Ehrenstein. So whichever yeah. one you want to tackle, but I think they're along the same the same vein there. Yeah, I mean, I think that there's this big attractive force to two different things, which are both really challenging. On the one hand, you can go full, like, let's do the normal operational thing. And then if you look, you know, let's say a company like Shapeways, they were a manufacturer that used normal 3D printing commodity equipment with some software on top. And I think that they maybe took a couple hundred million dollars or some huge amount. And now they're worth $30 million total enterprise value. And so like, that was, that was the what we see as grand opening, grand closing of trying to do a VC model on what's basically a traditional manufacturing company. And that's what I do wonder about these new approaches like a Hadrian or something of like, once everyone does the same thing, do you experience margin compression? You know, so that's like the ops pitfall of like, you just become a regular manufacturer with a website. Um, is that actually better at all? Did you really achieve anything for yourself or the industry? And the other side is what we did, which was going too far into trying to make tech solve everything. And so some people are like really trying to have fancy tech solutions and they're not being pragmatic enough. And I think the way to be in between there is you can make tech achieve things if you narrow the window of what you need to achieve, right? So you can get highly automated machined parts or whatever if your machined parts are in a certain window, you know, and then you can get better returns than traditional ops and you're not just a regular company with a website, you know? I think that's really like squaring the circle between those is you really do need the tech to do something or else you're a normal company. And, you know, startups don't beat the shit out of their employees or regular companies. And so like that means they're gonna have worse labor costs, you know, higher labor costs. So like regular companies are brutal as hell, right? And so like, I think that if you wanna run a company like that, you know, have fun, but like industry is rough, you know, for manufacturing, a lot of those people are really exploited. Um, and so I think that like, you know, are you really going to push your people as hard to exploit them? Maybe, but then do you really want to run that company, you know? And, you know, you got to pay for a software team too. They're really expensive and don't pay off really fast, you know? I, I've, I think we've got a few more questions here that all are kind of forward looking questions and, and probably a positive way to, to wrap up the conversation. We'll say it's the lightning round because I know we're like in yeah. the last like five minutes of recording here. But this one comes from Mark Estefanos. What do you wish you knew in your career or earlier 
in your career that you know now? Classic question. I'd love to hear your answer to this one. Yeah, man. I mean, I think I wish I would have moved to an area like San Francisco, not necessarily San Francisco, but I wish I would have been somewhere where there were lots of mentors who um, who could actually like tell you how it works. Like I just had this huge shift when I moved to San Francisco and met like real founders and real, you know, I just never met those people in, in Pittsburgh. And not that they weren't there, I just never had access to them. And I feel like the, the, sure. it was a little bit more of this like conservative, you can't get an intro to these people. And it's like, you just bump into these people in San Francisco in coffee shops now, you know, um, and they're the same kind of people. So I think that like going to some place with mentors is probably the number one thing. And even like, you know, should I have worked in a tech company before I started one? I think that's like probably a really good idea for a lot of people. Like I have some control issues that mean I have to work for myself all the time. So that's like a personal problem. But like maybe I should have worked in a tech company, you know, like I, I would say like it probably like a a really well executed series B company or something that like you could see as your first one for a couple of years might've been the better approach, you know? So I think gaining that early on, um, other stuff, early career stuff. I mean, honestly, like so many people don't realize that like, if you're in a well-run company, your career is only as, uh, as, as, you know, as fast as your ability to make the company's goals move. So I've had people like, I remember I hired this one woman straight out of college and she was from a super low privilege background, studied mechanical engineering at some school that never had an engineering program. No one cared about her and hiring. She became a machinist with us, even though she was an engineer. And now she runs an entire lab at Google, you know? And I think the reason was that she kept making herself useful to the goals. Like she was on the floor. She wasn't just making parts. She was improving process. And then she was going into the quality thing to make the process better. Then she was leading quality. We gave her extra stuff, you know, you, you get what you put into this stuff. And so I think some people, you need the confidence to be able to do that in a sort of resourceful. List. I don't think enough people do that as just employees. And then I think that not enough people um, think they can just talk to all the practitioners, you know? So like, again, maybe not necessarily mentors, but people who are in the space, you can reach out to people on LinkedIn and everything else and just get all this great information. People reach out to me all the time and I take calls with them um, on the morning on weekends. Um, <laughs> if they're willing to, to meet me at 8am on the weekends, I'm like, yeah, cool. We'll talk. Um, yeah. uh, so I think that's at least for me, what I would give people advice. Like, you know, people that are accessible, um, and do this. Um, I think everything else you just like feel like, yeah, you can read a bunch of business books. I read a bunch of business books. I feel like it's hard to internalize their ideas unless you live it, you know? And it's like, oh yeah, scaling's hard. It's hard to maintain culture. It's like, what's that even mean when you don't even add a company, you know? Like you don't feel what that means until you're there and really feeling the pain of getting everyone in the same direction, you know? It, it's kind of funny. I didn't really put two and two together until now that, yeah, you dove right into startups. You didn't like work for a tech company right out of no. the gate. You just you just went right in. I, I think the advice about mentors going to the spot spots where they are because as someone that did live in the bay area it just shifts your mentality even when you move somewhere after that because you're like oh yeah it's good to surround myself with a community that seeks out that type of ambition if you will totally. because yes, those yes. Th those communities exist now in pittsburgh columbus milwaukee hey, exactly. all these yeah, cities but if you if you're just like let's say a standard resident of these spots you might not think to start going out to that the same way when like you said you're just every coffee shop in san francisco is a networking opportunity so so let's, this one comes from uh, Guy Cavalcanti and what worked slash didn't get solved in your last companies and how has that turned into a better plan going forward at Volition? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think what worked sort of as I alluded to before was like having this interface that would allow you to get inside the workflow. I think that really worked with us and people like that. Um, sorry, what was the rest of the question? What worked versus what um, didn't work? Uh, what worked and didn't work and how has that turned into a, a, a good plan at Volition yeah. now? 
Yeah. So then what didn't work was having an extreme complicated operations thing predicated on solving a very highly technical um, thing. And I would say that we cut out a lot of that by just not having a factory. I think the complicated technical thing, our data thing, I actually almost made the same mistake again. But luckily, we had calculated a little bit better and we actually were able to get through it. But, um, you know, I, I think that's probably the major thing there. I think also... Um, I did not scale this company that fast, you know, like volition. So I only am hiring very senior people in the beginning, giving them lots of autonomy. And, you know, in the beginning, like I couldn't get PhD, like mathematicians to do the stuff at Plethora, all the math, right? So I had to hire all these guys straight out of school. That that did not work very well. They were just, they were very junior and not able to kind of like really grok working by themselves on something like this. So I feel like I didn't build the early team as well as I would today too. So just team dynamics there and being extremely focused on just, you know, like even just like PL stuff and metric stuff. And like, you know, I just feel like I'm just a way more, um, uh, you know, good entrepreneur than I was when I first started Plethora, you know? Sure. And, and, and final question, I think this uh, final question aside from, Hey, how do we connect with you and, and follow your journey at Volition now? But Ed Chung, I think, has a nice way to wrap this up. What keeps you going? Super general question, but we started this conversation almost two hours ago talking yeah. about your mission. So maybe we we put a bow around it this way. Yeah. I mean, I think that I'm almost like two different mental diseases keep me going. And I would say one of them is ADHD, which means I'm like restless and hyper and, and need stimulus all the time, you know? And so being in a normal desk job would not work. Like I would hate it. Like I'd rather be hunting for food than being at some company like that, you know? Um, and so hence why I've only worked for myself, right? And I've worked in these kind of high experience kind of companies. So that's one is that. I think the other one is Asperger's. So like, you know, I'm like diagnosed Asperger's or whatever. And what that means, you often get these like special interests, right? So when I say that, like I read a Richard Scarry book and my entire life was studying that stuff. Well, I got obsessed like a long time ago. And so I have an obsession that like feeds my need for, you know, like I literally have sat down for a week and organized 3 million components using our software with lots of coffee, you know, and just, you know, I just, you just see the matrix of components and like, you can't do that unless you're obsessed with it, you know? And so like, I can't hire people to do stuff like that. So I think partly it's like, I'm driven just cause I'm restless and I have an obsession that I just want this thing to exist, you know? Um, it's nothing more than that. It's not like I chose this, you know, it's like it chose me, you know, um, it's like I have some proclivity for loving technical stuff and I also like to do it. And I, and I think I learned to love um, management, actually, like a lot of people in tech, I think you have to pick if you're a, a co-founder, if you want to double down on engineering and, and building product or if you want to do more management guy stuff and, and not actually get your hands dirty. And I, I chose the latter, like not actually getting my hands dirty. So like I actually do like, you know, I organize the stuff. I do a lot of product work, but I don't, I don't do any programming anymore. I don't even build physical stuff anymore. I had to do a car repair the other day. That's about it. But, um, you know, I don't usually do that. And I think that, um, I think that it's sort of like there's a craft of management that in many ways is just like anything like woodworking or something, you know, like there's the principles and tools and that actually motivates me now too. I really like the craft of doing it, you know, yeah. as just another, another new obsession, I guess. Well, I've admired your work from afar for a number of years. I'm glad we finally got a chance to have this long, no holds bar conversation <laughs> here on Manufacturing Happy Hour. This is an epic that I don't know if we'll ever be able to replicate on the show. <laughs> But Nick, what's the best way to find you and Volition going forward? Yeah, I mean, I think that like, so for me, it's probably easiest just to get a hold of me on Twitter, which is just Nick Pinkston, N-I-C-K, Nick, pink like the color, S-T-O-N. 
Um, and then for volition, we're at go volition. Um, no one uses the word volition. It means willpower as in the power to create shit, you know? Um, and so, yeah, so go volition.com. Um, and then, you know, my Gmail is on my LinkedIn. So just, you can go there and find it. Um, but yeah, reach out. I'm like very accessible. So I'm super happy we could do this, man. I really appreciate it. I've been wanting to like tell people these stories and stuff. So I'm really glad that we could do this. Um, so thanks again. No problem. I'll have everything you mentioned linked up in the show notes at manufacturinghappyhour.com. And Nick, thanks again for jumping on. Awesome, man. Thanks so much. Hey, thanks for listening. Hope you enjoyed Nick's plethora of stories, pun intended, from the past three episodes. He's certainly an individual that is a wealth of information when it comes to manufacturing, a wealth of perspectives, and it was awesome getting to do this for the first time, a three-part mega episode. So I'm interested to hear what y'all thought about that. But before we get there, if you want to learn more, if you want to access the show notes to this episode, well, that's manufacturinghappyhour.com slash 114. And of course, there are resources episode 112 and 113 as well. Manufacturinghappyhour.com slash 112 or slash 113 will get you right there by the way since we were trying something new with these past few episodes i'd love to hear what you thought about it a great way to do that would be in a five-star rating and review over at apple podcasts or you can simply leave a five-star rating over at spotify doesn't take long to do either and stuff like that certainly helps boost us and get us in the ears of more manufacturing leaders so with that thanks so much for tuning in stay innovative stay thirsty we'll catch you again next week cheers Thanks for listening to Manufacturing Happy Hour, powered by the Industrial Network.